Welcome to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. My name is Fregel Byrne. Every week I speak to leading sustainability thinkers and practitioners, scientists, economists, NGOs, business leaders and investors. We discuss the sustainability imperative, the key challenges, the latest thinking, and what's working in sustainability, resilience and regeneration. I'm very pleased today to welcome Rutger Bregman to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. Rutger is a historian and author who has published five books on history, philosophy and economics, Utopia for Realists in 2017, and his most recent book, Humankind, were both New York Times bestsellers and have been translated into more than 40 languages. Rutger has twice been nominated for the prestigious European Press Prize for his work at The Correspondent. He lives in Holland. So thank you very much, Rutger, for joining me today on the Sustainability Agenda podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. Well, I'm very much looking forward to talking to you about your fascinating new book, Humankind, and also to get your views on some of the environmental crises we are currently facing. Um, But maybe just before we begin, if you can tell us a little bit about your background and uh, your current work focus, Rutger. Sure. Um, So I'm a Dutch historian. I live in a place called Houten, which is a very lovely, boring provincial town in the Netherlands, where... uh, not much happens. So perfect place to be as a writer. Um, and I've written two books that have been published in English. The first one is called Utopia for Realists and was published in 2017. It's about all sorts of crazy radical ideas like a much shorter working week and a universal basic income, ideas that might just become reality in the future. And now my new book is called Humankind, A Hopeful History, in which I argue that deep down, most people are pretty decent. Yes. Yes. Well, I should congratulate you. Uh, it, it's, it seems to have shot to the top of the bestsellers list. You've touched a nerve. Um, I, I know Utopia for Realists also did very well, but um, congratulations on that. Um, maybe before we, we, we start to talk about the background to writing this book, um, we clearly face numerous interlocking challenges right now on various fronts. What, what in particular is on your mind at the moment, Rutger? Particular? Well, climate change, obviously. I mean, it seems to me that COVID-19, in a way, is like climate change, like a climate change on steroids, or, or climate change is a pandemic in slow motion. Um, I don't know. I, I still wonder sometimes whether people who are in my bubble, you know, progressives or however you want to call it, on the left, if they fully realize just how radical it is what we need to be doing right now, you know, even if we just are talking about halving carbon emissions in 2030 and and moving to zero carbon emissions in 2050. Uh, you know, I've, I've so ever since I finished writing Humankind, I've been writing mostly about the history of mobilizations. So I wrote one piece that's only been published in Dutch about, you know, uh, how the US and how the UK mobilized during the Second World War, because that's not very fashionable, you know, to make this comparison with, with wartime mobilizations. And I just wonder if, if people sort of really understand how radical that is, you know, how fundamental the, the break should be and just how industrial it also is that you just need to start building, building, building and uh, yeah, change the whole structure of the economy very quickly. So, yeah, that's that's been very much on my mind since uh, I finished writing this book. 
Absolutely. <laughs> That's very interesting. And I'd love to talk to you about that. Um, absolutely. The, the scale of change and some of the ideas and what your thoughts are in terms mm -hmm. of les lessons from the mobilization. I I'm really interested in what drew you to, to the idea of writing a book about human nature mm -hmm. uh, at a time like this. Um, it, 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 it doesn't seem at, at first uh, glance a very fashionable topic and uh, we're overwhelmed, uh, as you know, with all kinds of uh, challenges and issues right now. Um, but what, what, what drew you to, to, to this, uh, I guess, lingering uh, mm. that's been mm. uh, around for, for so many centuries? Hmm. Well, it struck me that even though there are so many fundamental disagreements, when we look at the view of human nature, there's actually a lot of, there are a lot of similarities on the, on the left and on the right and among progressives and conservatives. You know, again and again, this idea that deep down people are just selfish. So the idea that people are just fundamentally selfish is very deeply entrenched in Western culture. It goes back all the way to the ancient Greeks. You can read the Greek historian Thucydides already, you know, talking about this view of human nature. It goes back to Orthodox Christianity, the notion that we're all just sinners, uh, or the Enlightenment philosophers, the founding fathers of the United States. John Adams once wrote, once wrote an essay with the title, All Men Would Be Tyrants If They Could. And then... Uh, you can also question what is the, the first and most important dogma of the current capitalist model that we've built. And it is, again, people are just selfish and that we have to deal with it. And uh, the reason I wrote this book is that I started to notice that so many scientists from so many different disciplines in the last 15 to 20 years have actually been moving to a very different view of human nature, a very different idea of who we are as a species. And I, um, I realized that no one sort of had connected the dots yet or should put all that research in one place and to show that something bigger is going on so that's what i try to do with this book yeah it's fascinating bringing together all the the different uh, research and, and thinking uh, and, and how it's evolved why does it matter what we think uh, about human nature and um and i'm just wondering you know if you ask mm -hmm. someone on the street you say are, are people you say, are, are people fundamentally decent or trustworthy mm -hmm. i'm wondering would, would they by and large say well yeah it, it, yeah by and large yeah but it depends on circumstances mm -hmm. do you think that's the case or do you think that it is uh that, that's really embedded in, in 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 the general population as well well a couple of things about this so Obviously, we are a highly flexible species, so circumstances matter a lot. Our history matters a lot, and we can become very, you know, different in different circumstances. But then, on the other hand, we also have certain, I would say, natural tendencies. For example, we it's clearly in our nature that we want food. We crave food, right? Because otherwise, uh, we die. We, we have a longing often for sex as well which makes sense as well, because if we wouldn't have sex, then we would die out as a species, right? And then if you look at some other things, like for example, our capacity for violence, it's interesting that actually, most people find it very hard to be violent. And if people actually manage to become violent, for example, soldiers who managed to kill during a war, which is very hard. We know from historical research that a lot of soldiers actually didn't even pull the trigger because they couldn't do it. Um, but then soldiers who did manage to kill often come back and they have PTSD, they've, they've become traumatized, which suggests to me that maybe this is not what we're born to do. Like there's no psychological benefit here. Um, so yeah, I sort of take, a both, take both positions in my book. On the one hand, we have certain natural tendencies, but on the other hand, it also matters a lot what we believe about ourselves, because ideas are never merely ideas. Our view of human nature can become a self-fulfilling prophecy. 
if we assume that most people are just selfish, then we start designing our institutions around that, that idea. We build our democracies in such a way and our, our workplaces and our, um, our schools. And then we create the kind of people that our theory presupposes. And in the second half of my book, I try to argue that we can turn this around and that we can build a different kind of world that assumes that most people are actually pretty decent. And then we can create, also create uh, those kind of people building on you know, the tendencies that are already there uh, and, and are deeply embedded in our evolutionary history. Yeah, very interesting. I mean, your book is full. It's rich in, in examples of, I guess we call research that promulgated the, the idea of a pessimistic view of human nature, which uh, after your research and, and digging a little bit, turned out that they were bogus. Um, mm -hmm. Can you tell us a little bit about the story of Easter Island, which uh, I think is so interesting because it's often used as a kind of case study for our coming climate collapse? Yes, yes, yes. So, Easter Island is obviously this fascinating place in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, the most remote place where, where, where people live in the whole world. And it was discovered by uh, Dutch explorers a couple of centuries ago. And what they saw were these huge statues, these huge monoliths, moai as, as they're called. Um, and and the, the explorers, they couldn't understand how these people had built them. Because what they found was a population of only around 3,000 people. Uh, and there were no trees on the island. So the question was, how had they managed to transport these huge statues? How had they managed to erect them? Uh, you know, it was, it was a big mystery. So, yeah, Easter Island is really this fascinating place. And so many bestsellers have been written about it again and again about this question. You know, what happened here? And the, 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 the standard story is a quite pessimistic story. It's, it's made famous by... People like Jared Diamond, you know, who wrote his book, uh, Collapse, published in, what is it, 2005? And, and the standard story sees Easter Island as a metaphor for our future. So the story goes something like this. Here you have these people who get this obsession with building statues. You know, they, they're really in love and you have these competing clans on the island. Um, and and uh, uh, yeah, uh, how do you say that? egoistic leaders who want more and more statues to compete with the other leaders. And, and so they start, start doing that and building more and more and more. But then they have to cut all the trees, obviously, for that, until at one point all the trees are gone on the island. Sort of their, upset, their obsession with growth um, has completely got out of hand. And then the so soil starts eroding and it becomes very hard to, um, to grow food. Uh, people become hungry. Civil war breaks out. They become cannibals. And so then when the first European explorers arrive on the island, they find a civilization that has basically committed eco-suicide, you know, has killed itself. Now, why has this story become so popular? Because people see it as a metaphor for our future. They say, look, the Easter Islanders, they destroyed their own environment and they couldn't get away. And we're basically doing the same to planet Earth, right? We're also destroying our environment. And just like they had no ships to get away, we have no spaceships, or at least not enough for all of us to, to get away and to survive this. Um, that, is, that is sort of the standard story of Easter Island that, I must be honest here, I used to believe as well. So uh, I've written one book that luckily has not been translated into English, where I again retold this uh, Easter Island narrative in sort of the Jared Diamond way. Yes. Um, it was only while I was researching this book that I wanted to take another look at the latest scientific consensus about Easter Island. And it turns out that actually, well, scientists believe something very, very different happened. Um, so we now have strong evidence that indeed, 
the trees were gone at some point, but probably not because these Easter Islands developed this obsession with building Moai. They only, I don't know, uh, built like um, 900 or 1,000 of them over the couple of centuries. So that's like, I don't know, one or two a year. That's not, that's not too crazy. Uh, and they had to cut down, well, maybe at max 15,000 trees for that. But there were millions of trees on the island. So that can never, that can never explain, you know, why the, the whole forest was gone. There's a more likely culprit that we know of now, which is the Polynesian rat, who probably um, uh, ate uh, the the nuts of the trees. So, and that's why the the forest uh, was gone at some point. It's a more, it's a more uh, uh, I think that's a stronger uh, theory. Um, but then it's interesting that actually the the population of East Island, the people, they managed to adapt. So now we have a, a strong archaeological evidence that the food production on the island actually went up after the trees were gone. Because these people, they were innovators. They come up with new agricultural techniques. And um, yeah, so they managed to survive uh, quite well. And historians have also taken another look at the um, descriptions that uh, European explorers gave of, um, yeah, of the state of this population. And it turns out that actually the first explorer was a man named Jacob Roggeveen. It's a Dutch guy. And um, yeah, he's, he's a little bit been forgotten by history because he... Well, he was a bit of a failure, you know. He believed, had some belief that there was some kind of sovereign land that didn't really exist. Um, and well, anyway, that's the reason why why, why people forgot him. Maybe also because he's Dutch, and every, everyone loved James Cook, who came after him. So people have been really <laughs> focusing on on James Cook descriptions. But actually, the first one was Jacob Rochefain. And if you read his journal, he describes Easter Island as a earthly paradise, and he describes the inhabitants as very friendly had a lot of food and they, they freely offered food to the Europeans. So very different description, very different from the story that, that people like Jared Diamond have always been telling us. Much more hopeful story. It's a story of a population that managed to adapt and that was much more resilient. Now, is it then still sort of message for the future? And as I said, you know, I'm very, very worried about climate change and the extinction of our species. But my fear is that too often, um, environmental activists and you know people in general worry about the state of our planet they become too pessimistic and then they start describing our species as some kind of virus a plague on the planet and uh, this is what you see a lot with people who worry about overpopulation right and then also very quickly also a lot of racism creeps in um i think we need to think in another direction and emphasize our species capacity of uh, for innovation you know problems can grow on an exponential scale but solutions as well. And if I look at the last five years, you know, the huge climate justice movement that has been kickstarted by this Swedish girl, 16 years old. Uh, if I look at the technological progress, if I look at the political awareness that is going up and up and up, um, I am hopeful. I'm not optimistic, but I am hopeful, but I, I see the potential for real change. And that is to me, the real message of East Island. Yeah, um, very interesting, very interesting. But I guess in the end, the, sad, the fate was very sad, you know, non-decent non humans. Uh, they were, uh, came and took them away as slaves. I mean, yeah. what, what about slavery? It's not something you particularly cover in the book. Um, you know, three or four hundred years, you know, tens of million of uh, slaves. Uh, how do you explain that or how does that fit into the way you look at uh, human nature? Well, this is obviously one of those big questions that hovers over my book. 
if, if you can argue that on the one people on the one hand people have evolved to be friendly and this is literally what biologists say nowadays huh? so they talk about survival of the friendliest which means that for millennia it was actually the friendliest among us who had the most kids and still had the biggest chance of passing on their genes to the next generation but then the, the question only becomes bigger and more urgent how do you explain slavery how do you explain ethnic cleansing wars uh, genocide the holocaust how, how can that ever fit in your theory so I guess that's one of the ironies of writing a book like this, that you have to go on for hundreds of pages about all the dark chapters in our history. Um, now, I, uh, I obviously can't give sort of a, like a one minute answer uh, because that would sort of trivialize all the terrible things we've done. And there's a lot of evidence that we're actually one of the cruelest species in the whole animal kingdom, right? We do things that other animals wouldn't even dream of think of doing, right? I've never heard of a penguin that says, Let's lock up another group of penguins and make them into our slaves or exterminate them all. Uh, these are like singularly human crimes. Now, let me, let me, let me emphasize a couple of things. Um, in the first place, I think we should recognize that there is a dark side to our capacity for friendship and, and, and loyalty and comradeship. Very often in history, we do the most horrible things in the name of friendship, comradeship, and loyalty. There's a really dark side to our to our friendliness, which is this in-group, out-group behavior. Uh, some people call this our, our tribal tendencies or our groupish tendencies, and that is clearly an important mechanism. Another important mechanism is, uh, mechanism is this capacity that we have for dehumanization, is that somehow we can teach ourselves or societies can teach themselves to look at other human beings and not see human beings, but see things. Distance plays a really important role here, both physical distance and psychological distance. So we know that in, in wars throughout history, um, the sort of increasing the distance has, has really made it possible to cause more and more casualties. Most soldiers, as I mentioned earlier, they find it very hard to fire their guns, but then they find it much easier to just push a button on an artillery device and kill a lot of people far away because that's sort of psychologically easier to do. Same is true with the psychological distance. So. A lot of soldiers nowadays and, and in, in, the, in the run of the 20th century were um, conditioned and well, you could call it brainwashed to, um, yeah, to, to make sh shooting and killing a kind of Pavlov reaction. This is, there's been a lot of techniques that have been developed by the U.S. military to do this. Um, dehumanization is another one of those things. I don't think that happens like very quickly. There are some of these uh, people who believe that there's a savage you know just below the surface and that you can very quickly turn a human being into a killer machine i think that's absolutely wrong but it can happen and that is a very dark truth about our species that uh, after a long and complicated historical process and i think this this takes a long time if you just look at the history of the of the holocaust or the history of slavery right it's just very deeply entrenched ideas and uh, about the so-called supposed inferiority of other people um, yeah, at some point they can cause us to do the most horrible things. Um, and this is, uh, this is such a depressing fact about our species is that we can just, sometimes it seems we can get used to anything. And, um, and, and that is, I, I also think it's one of the most, it's one of the big paradoxes of, of this book is that, yes, I write on the one hand that we have evolved to be friendly, but then on the other hand, friendliness is so often the problem. Because progress doesn't come from people who are friendly. It often comes from people who are nasty and difficult and who are willing to go against the status quo and who can stand the shame of, of doing something like that. Um, 
So yeah, it's a long answer, and I realize it's still not even the beginning of an answer. But you asked a very big question. Yeah, no, absolutely. No, th- thank you for that, Rutger. Um, in your book, uh, um, you talk about the the New Orleans flooding again. Another very interesting story. I, I wonder whether you could briefly just uh, uh, talk a little bit about that and what maybe some of the lessons from that are. Yeah, well, as we move into an era of more and more, you know, climate disasters. It's obviously important to know how people respond to things like floodings and tsunamis and earthquakes. And, you know, how do we behave when there is a crisis? Well, if you've watched a lot of the news or if you've watched a lot of Hollywood movies uh, about how we behave, you know, uh, in, in moments like this. Was this the day after tomorrow, the movie or uh, Contagion? I mean, these these movies always give us the same picture is that people... Well, we basically go nuts, right? We just show that civilization is only this thin veneer and that deep down we're just savages. Um, and at a moment of crisis, we start plundering, looting, and we're very quick to panic. This is, again, a very old theory in, in, in Western culture, and especially many elites believe in it. So um, elites, when they look at human nature, when they think about human nature, they tend to look in the mirror and think that other people would behave like they would do, which is to act quite selfishly. Um, But we actually have a huge amount of evidence right now about uh, what really happens after a natural disaster. So Katrina is indeed the perfect example here. And the best book written about that has been written by Rebecca Solnit. The book is called The Paradise Built in Hell. I can really recommend it to everyone. So um, what has she and... um, uh, and other uh, scientists uh, uh, described is that even though the press was full of stories about looting and plundering and violence, blah, 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 uh, in, in those weeks, what researchers actually found out later, anthropologists and sociologists, is that what really happened was an explosion of cooperation and altruism. People from the left to the right, rich, poor, young, old, all working together. It seems as if Crises or disasters push a reset button in our brains and we go back to our true, our better selves. And we just, we just can't help but work together. Um, is Katrina the only case study here? No, actually, we've got more than 700 case studies now. In the US, there's a disaster research center. They've been doing research ever since the 1960s. We also know it from other studies. Uh, for example, in my book, I have uh, I start actually with the description of how the British behaved during the Blitz when the Germans started bombing London and other cities. And again, um, what happened is that you know people just started cooperating. In, in this case, it was called the "Keep Calm and Carry On," the Blitz spirit, uh, the, the British stiff upper lip. But then later, they found out that actually it wasn't typically British; it was just universally human because the Germans behaved in exactly the same way. When, uh, yeah, when the British started bombing Germany, believing that they could break the German spirit because they had a much weaker moral character. Well, no, it's just human nature that we're talking about here. So I think this is a very important uh, and also hopeful thing to know as we move uh, deeper into this century. And we just know that there are so many disasters waiting for us. Um, at least we also know that when that happens, we can rely on each other. Yeah, it's very inspiring and very interesting and uh, educational, uh, for sure. And um, I guess at the same time, the whole question of climate change is, I guess, is a kind of wicked problem, what they call a wicked problem. It's, it's slow moving. It's mm-hmm. far away. 
uh, it's kind of invisible. It builds up, you know, critical mass and there's, you know, these kind of tipping points and things. Uh, so it's a, it's a different kind of crisis. Certainly the, the, the post-crisis uh, response is, is very inspiring. What about the way we, we, we think about these kind of crises that are building up? Hmm. Well, let's imagine you're some Greek god and uh, another friend of yours, also a Greek god, says, you know, let's, let's think of a problem that is going to be so hard that humanity will, will never come up with a solution. <laughs> you know, what would be the most difficult problem be? I think they would come up with something like climate change, right? <laughs> As you described it, it's we all contribute to the problem. It's it's at the time it's invisible. It's it's yeah, the, the cause and effect relationship is is vague. Is is measured in terms of statistics. It's not like oh, you do this and you immediately see that there. So yeah, this is sort of it's like a perfect problem for us not to solve. And then what you what you see happening in especially i think the last five years is just astonishing i think it really is um is we've just seen so much political and technological progress and i know that we're not nearly there and i as i as i mentioned earlier i think that still a lot of people underestimate just how much more needs to be done um but then if you just look at um well, the huge movement, we've, we, I mean, we've become used to it right now, also with the anti-racism protests. But when I was a student, which is not very long ago, uh, I'm 32 years old right now. So let's say 10 years ago, any students of my generation, and I already feel old in that way, we didn't protest anything, really. You know, there were protests when the government decided to cut our allowance, you know, because that was, that meant, yeah, sort of less purchasing power so that I could drink less beer. But I did, I wasn't part of a protesting generation of students, but now look at what's happening. You know, it's totally changed. Um, if you look at the European union, where I think um, there's, there's most reason for hope um, and the very ambitious green new deal or, or green deal, as they call it, you know, Europeans always need to steal some American terminology because they don't have their own, you know, great language. But then if you look at the actual plans, actually, Europe is like light years ahead of the of the US, light years, you know, in terms of policies. And then Europe is one of the biggest markets in the world, you know, 500 million consumers. So if we change something here, then often man, manufacturers feel the need to change it for the whole world because they're not going to make a car in the Europe and then make a different model in the US, right? That's often too expensive. So just by sheer, yeah, the power of our market, we can change so much. And uh, I think there are a lot of great examples of that that don't really get the ex- attention they deserve in the press, you know? Yeah. I, I mean, your your book, as you say, in the second half is full of, I, I guess, wonderful, inspiring stories, how uh, I guess people in different walks of life are, are embodying these positive, uh, you know, new views of human nature. And, you mm-hmm. know, prisons in Norway are the work of Just Block in Holland. But... I'm often struck by, I guess, the low virality of, of effective ideas, you know, and how slow they, they change uh, or, or how, how slow good ideas get taken up elsewhere. I mean, we mm. know there's strong evidence that sustainability, for example, generates higher financial returns for companies. And yet it's by far the minority that are pursuing any significant, you know, uh, sustainability uh, action. 
Yeah. Also, there are clearly, you know, uh, I worked on a podcast about Project Drawdown, listing these, you know, uh, 100 most effective ways of, of taking carbon dioxide. Yeah, the, the it's fantastic. fantastic. And, and there are, you know, uh, very simple ideas like reducing food waste, which is, I guess, mm -hmm. so-called win-win. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, half of food goes to waste or girls' education. Ideas that are really very powerful and you would think not so difficult to, to enact. And yet, um, it, it is a bit disappointing. Yeah, well, it's disappointing in terms of the amount of press attention that, that they get. I, I totally agree with that. But just writing this book made me more hopeful about how big this movement of people actually is who are trying to implement a more hopeful view of human nature. Uh, you know, the first half of the book is about the movement in science. You know, the silent revolution of so many scientists moving to a more hopeful view of who we are as a species. And the second half of the book is about the people who are already trying to put the theory into practice. And again, they often don't know it from each other. So Joost de Bloch, who's, a, who's an entrepreneur in the Netherlands, has built this huge uh, healthcare organization, 15,000 employees with no management, completely based on trust, self-directed teams who you know, decide for themselves who they want to hire, uh, you know, what they see as high-quality healthcare. And now they... They're, they're, they've been voted like five times best employer in the Netherlands and they're, they deliver healthcare at a higher quality, uh, a cheaper cost and give higher salaries to the employees. So that's a hugely inspiring story. But then he often doesn't know about, you know, similar things that are happening in democracy, for example, new ideas of doing democracy, participatory democracy, uh, letting citizens decide and um, uh, making citizens into uh, engaged citizens who uh, who have really have a stake in their in their cities and their states, and um, then you also have something similar indeed in the in the criminal justice system. If you look at Norway, where they um, they have built this whole uh, prison system based on trust, and the prisoners are allowed to socialize with the guards, and they have the freedom to make music, and they uh, even have their own music studio, music label, which is called Criminal Records, and then. That sounds pretty crazy if you think about it. And if you look at some of the pictures where these um, inmates are sunbathing together with the guards. Uh, but then you look at the statistics and it turns out that Norway has the lowest recidivism rate in the world. The lowest chance that someone will commit another crime once he or she gets out of prison. So here you have these brilliant institutions that turn criminals into citizens. Now, all these people, they often don't know it from each other. But if you look at their philosophy and if you look at what they're doing and how they're implementing it, I think they're really part of one movement. And again, that was a, a reason uh, why I wanted to write this book. It's not because all these ideas are mine, obviously not, but I was just in a, in a privileged position where I could just see, hey, wait a minute, something bigger is going on here. And people need to know this from each other because then they, don't, they feel less lonely and they feel part of something bigger. Yeah, very interesting. It brings up uh, a bit of an elephant in the room, uh, Rutger, uh, mm -hmm. uh, capitalism, because um, <clears throat> uh, many ideas that uh, seem to make sense don't get taken up. And we live in a particular era, a particular socioeconomic moment, shall we say, uh, mm -hmm. after uh, you know a period of free markets, uh, fundamentalism of various kinds. Now, I, I know you were in the, the, well, the hot water or the spotlight <laughs> for some comments you made, uh, well, well, a point of comments, I'd say, in, in, in Davos. But I was reading a, a, an interview or a piece in The Guardian afterwards, and um, it, maybe it was the headline or I don't know, uh, uh, it said this is about saving capitalism. I don't know whether that's a direct quote mm -hmm. for you. And I also saw that you said, you know, in many ways, the past 30 years have been the best in the world history. 
And I'm just mm. interested to get your thoughts on that. Uh, it's been a particular time of what they call, I guess, ne- neoliberal economics, mm. uh, the last 30 years in particular. And what, 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 what about capitalism? Do, do we really need to save it or, or, or is it not time for something new? I mean, at the heart of capitalism, mm-hmm. we have this idea about relentless economic growth. It's hard to escape that either in the, yeah. the, the actual corporations or the financial system that uh, surrounds it. Yeah. Well, I've never really liked those discussions about capitalism versus socialism or the market versus the state, because often the dichotomy doesn't make sense. Um, There are many different forms of capitalism. In the 1950s and 60s, we had a form of capitalism that had much higher taxes on the rich, you know, up to 90 percent marginal tax rate for the very rich and still had higher rates of innovation and economic growth. And then people can say, oh, but I'm against growth. But then it's then my response is, yeah, but but growth is a wonderful thing. You know, kids grow, plants grow. Obviously, we want some kind of growth. I agree that nowadays we have growth of bullshit. We have growth of meaningless jobs that don't really need to exist, where people just earn money to buy stuff they don't need, right? And become more depressed and and or watching uh, telly or browsing Facebook all day or sending uh, writing reports no one's ever going to read. So clearly that's depressing. But we can also just redefine growth. I've never really liked that, the word degrowth, because it seems to me that it's all about taking this word and giving it another kind of meaning uh, and restructuring the economy so that when sort of um, our statisticians report that there's economic growth, that we know that it went in a good direction, you know, that we built more uh, renewable energy, that we built more, uh, I don't know, um, all kinds of, I mean, it's clear that if we want to tackle climate change, it's all about building, building, building as well, right? It's a huge industrial pro- project. We need to totally change the whole uh, energy system. Um, that, that, that will clearly generate growth, right? But then it's just, it's just a question of what kind of growth. Um, so, yeah, I've never really liked those sort of those old debates. They seem to be a little bit more part of the Cold War age. And I guess I'm part of a different generation now that is not traumatized by the Cold War, that doesn't see the world in this black and white capitalist versus communist way anymore. Um, uh, I've, I've often had this experience where, for example, I'm arguing for higher st- higher taxes and, and I'm pointing out that actually the state can be this great venture capitalist and a lot of great innovation are, are actually funded by the state. And then people say, oh, you're a communist. And then we just respond, oh, whatever. You know, whatever. It doesn't work anymore. So, um, yeah, I'd like to sort of try and move beyond those concepts. Yeah, it's it's an interesting one. It's a recurring. I mean, degrowth is is a very interesting idea. I think. Um, I guess part of it is the this this uh, notion of growth is so embedded in 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 so many ways. It's it's seen as a good thing, uh, even on newspapers that'll have headlines about environmental crisis on one page, they'll still talk about we're not meeting our 2.5% target for economic growth. And yet, if you look at 2.5% per year over 20, 25 years, you're talking about, you know, doubling or trebling the, the actual output, the actual output in, in, in the world and the, you know, and, and the number of planets that'll be required to, to actually achieve that is... Yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. But we want growth of renewable energy, right? We want growth of the amount of solar panels and windmills in this world and growth in all kinds of innovations and we want growth in funding to climate research. I mean, there's all kinds of growth that we do actually want. 
But then when you say, oh, degrowth, to me, it's always felt like that you've just given up and that you just allow sort of the status quo to keep this word, to sort of that the word has been hijacked by those who have actually, if they talk about growth, but what they actually talk about is destruction. Right, that's, that's often quite, what it means. That's quite or, strong <laughs> words. If you're, because clearly we need degrowth in certain kinds of areas. We need degrowth yeah, sure, in, sure. in, in, in throwaway consumerism. We need degrowth in fuel. We yeah, need yeah, fuel yeah. consumption. Sure, just sure, where yeah, yeah. growth is in itself, it, it, you know, it needs so many caveats that maybe just yeah, yeah, yeah. Thinking about but let that. me just say it's. Yeah. I I don't think it's going to be. It's not very inspiring. So how do you build a movement? How do you win an election? I think it's about about painting a different kind of world that we can live in and it's not it's it's about we want more of what's good and and i think that's what you should emphasize and not just my yeah my campaign is less of uh, i've often felt that this is one of the big problems with progressives and the left is that they all only know what they're against they're against growth against capitalism against racism against homophobia against the establishment against austerity and i'm against all those things as well but it's not it's not hugely inspiring to only be shouting what you're against them day after day in day out at some point you want to paint some kind of picture of you know the new world that awaits uh, yeah, a much better much more wonderful place that yeah. we could actually move towards it's very very interesting and, and absolutely true that um there is recurring theme in all the environmental uh discussions um that is uh, a bit terrifying and it is it often is a, a negative kind of tenor but yeah. um, I, I think it's you. And I, just just the one thing though, I do not agree with those who say that we, that for example, David Wallace Wells, uh, who wrote written this book, The Uninhabitable Earth, right? He's got a lot of people who've been saying, oh, that's too pessimistic, and you're going to cause a climate depression with people, and then nothing ever happens. I totally disagree with that. I think that um, sort of. Making people anxious and making people fearful is entirely justified and very effective. The big problem today seems to me not that people are not anxious enough, but, uh, or too anxious, sorry, but they're not anxious enough, but they're not fearful enough, not scared enough for what lies ahead. But the thing is, you also always need to then take another step. So yes, people should be scared, but then there are also reasons for hope, right? These two things go hand in hand. Yes. But, yeah, I really do not want to make the point that, you know, people need to be telling this happy clappy story about everything's going to be all right and don't read, read the, the scaremongers and the doom prophets. No, I, I thought for me, reading David Wallace Wells' book, uh, The Unhandled Earth, was a huge wake-up call and it really gave me a huge amount of energy. And I actually, when I, when I, I finished it, it was like, okay, I, I think I'm going <laughs> to basically devote the rest of well, the next 10 years to solely writing about climate change. Yeah, very interesting. Yeah, absolutely. Terribly important. Um, now, we talked about, um, I'd be interested in getting your thoughts on, on, on this, this history of mobilization and the kinds of change that you think are required. But just before that, maybe, how do you see, uh, have you thought about or explored how you know, socio-political change happens? Talking about these different movements, talking about these fantastic examples in many, many different domains. How does that uh, in your view, or what are some possible ways that that actually transforms into something bigger that is actually system changing or significantly system changing? Well, as a historian, I've always been a big believer in the power of ideas. And then I've been specifically interested in the interaction of ideas with moments of crisis. So, 
from my previous book, Utopia Freelist, I, I wrote this sort of short history of neoliberalism. A lot of people think that the history of neoliberalism started in the 1970s and the 1980s, with people like Reagan and Thatcher, who you know, had this different philosophy of, of governing and believed that we need to privatize everything and just let the market do its wonderful work. But actually, the history of neoliberalism goes back all the way to the 1950s. People like Milton Friedman and Friedrich von Hayek, who spent decades developing their ideas, building their institutions, and were just waiting for a moment of crisis that came in the 1970s, and then they took over. Uh, and yeah, their ideas were basically plagiarized by, by Reagan and Thatcher. But plagiarism is the highest goal in uh, <laughs> if you want to change the world. You know, that's really what you should be striving for. Um, so that's the era we've been living in now for, what is it, 40, 50 years. And I think the central dogma has been that people are just selfish and we have to deal with it. I am hopeful that now we can move into a different era because in 2008, there was this crisis, but there were no like genuine alternatives at hand. As I said, most people knew what they were against. But now with this crisis that is bigger than, than the one of 12 years ago, um, it seems to me that we have the alternatives on the agenda and they're on the menu. Um, a clear sign of this was the editorial that was published by the Financial Times at the beginning of April. Um, here you have the world's leading business newspaper that in many ways has been sort of the, the main neoliberal newspaper for, for decades. And what do they write? Well, they write that the state needs to become much more ambitious, uh, that we should consider things like higher taxes on the wealthy and the rich. We should think about a basic income and that maybe we need to reverse the policy direction. And this, like, this is what literally was in the article, reverse the policy direction of the last 40 years. Now, I think that's really a sign of the times. It's something that, uh, that I, I think we can really sense right now, a shift in the zeitgeist. There's a new generation coming. Um, in the 1980s, who was the most popular politician in the US among uh, the youth? It was Ronald Reagan. It was nowhere as popular as, as with, with, with students and young people. Now, who was the most popular in the UK back then? It was Thatcher. This has totally changed. There's now a new generation that is so much more progressive um, and also more you know, climate change aware than, than any generation before. And um, this generation is not in power yet, but give it another 10 years, give it a 20 years, another 20 years, and we'll be in a totally different environment. Now, that is very hopeful, obviously, but as you and I both know, we don't really have 20 years. So that's something that I worry about the most is how can we um, speed this up? Do we have enough time? Because we're still stuck with a generation of politicians that is basically, uh, yeah, that grew up in this Cold War era that, you know, they, they were in university in the 1980s or in the 1990s, maybe. And they still were fed all these theories about, I don't know, homo economicus or how the market can solve everything. And um, yeah, we need to get need to get rid of that. So the question is, how can we speed that up? Yeah, I think it's interesting that I think in one of your pieces you talked about is Milton Friedman talking about ideas that are lying around. But I thought that was quite interesting on the one hand because in, in a way the ideas weren't lying around; they were promulgated through you know think tanks and through mass mm -hmm. investment. And yeah. So, but also, yeah. as you say, ideas that are in the air. And I think if you look at the work of people like Kate Raworth and you know Donut yeah. Economics, there are yeah. some really powerful new ways of looking at you know balancing our, yeah. our economic needs with social environment needs as well yeah. so it's, it's very many examples so she's yeah. a great example uh it's interesting that it's actually a lot of female economists here 
you also have Mariana Mazzucato, the Italian economist who has shown us that, as I mentioned earlier, so much of the fundamental innovation actually is funded by the state. Um, the, the, her example, it's a wonderful example, is the iPhone. Everything that makes an iPhone a smartphone instead of a stupid phone. So touchscreen, voice recognition, battery, internet technology, you name it. It's all been invented by researchers on the government payroll. Uh, then it, it gets taken, all these innovations, by companies, which is fine. I mean, that's the job. They make a nice product out of it, but then let them at least pay their taxes so that we can fund the next round of innovation. Right? And this is the big problem, is that these apples, they're like pirateers. They take these technologies, but they don't give back. Um, and we should t completely turn it around so that we can fund the new round of innovations you know, for the, for the Green Deal. Um, she's a great example. Also, Carlota Perez, another economist, who's sort of the intellectual godmother of the Green Deal. I think that is that is just so exciting. I'm I'm very happy with that kind of thinking because it seems to me that just five six years ago the 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 climate movement was sort of I don't know intellectually starving, and now we have this much more robust ideas about what actually needs to be done. We need to have a very clear roadmap, a very clear industrial program, which you know means that a lot of people. Well, we'll need to change jobs or move into different jobs that we need to build, build, build. There's just so much that needs to be built, basically. Um, and Yeah, I'd be very interested to get, get your thoughts on, finally, on, on you, you mentioned this uh, piece that you'd written about mobilization. Um, and, and I guess um, a year ago or even six months ago, that would have been even more radical. But when you see now with the, the, the response to coronavirus, how, how radically things can change, uh, and, and how quickly. Can you talk a little bit about what, 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 what uh, inspired you in, in your research on, on mobilization and what some of the lessons might be? Yeah. So on the eve of the Second World War, the US military was one of the weakest militaries, weakest armies in the whole world. You know, it was technologically backwards. It was very small. But then in just a couple of years, something extraordinary happened. You know, it became really the, the industrial and the, the military powerhouse of the whole world. And it's just really, really fascinating to read that history because it it goes against a lot of the sort of political ideas that people have right now. I think one of the dilemmas for many people on the left is going to be how do we combine top-down mobilization with bottom-up democracy? Because that's going to be really hard, to be honest. Uh, some, some people have some kind of romantic idea about the Second World War, how, I don't know, everyone came together and, you know, everyone sort of did um, what had to be done. Well, no, it was really this very strong top-down process where big businesses were basically being bullied by the government to do what had to be done. There was sort of the, I forgot his name, but the Jeff Bezos of, of his time who had this huge... Um, uh, company where that sold all kinds of stuff ac across the country. He was, he was. There's this famous picture of him being dragged by by the military from his office, while still sitting in his chair, because he was not doing what the government wanted him to do. Um, it's a it's a pretty harsh process, you know, mobilization. And that, but then the results were obviously amazing. I mean, just the, these these the production of cars dropped to almost zero in in just I don't know a couple of months. And then, you know, so many tanks and airplanes just kept being produced on, a, on an unimaginable scale. And that really made, a, made the difference, I think. Um, so 
it is it is a story of how much you can do if you really want to as a society but then it's uh, the organization of that is not like oh let's all sit together and have this participatory discussion where you know we have all the time in the world um i don't know so that is to me one of the biggest dilemmas that i'd like to write about sort of how do you politically organize something something this big when with every year that passes with every month or day that passes you just have you just have time you don't have the time right that that's that is the big problem you, my kinds of politics which is all about participatory bottom up um it's it, what it always assumes is that you have the time there's this famous saying from who was it oscar wilde i think who said that the whole problem with socialism is that it takes too many evenings well <laughs> a lot of people in the sustainability movement will have to agree with that right it does take a lot of evenings and normally that's is fine but then if you don't have those evenings what are you going to do uh i i i haven't made up my mind yet but i think that's that's going to be one of the big dilemmas for the future yes um a big question and and uh you it comes up a little bit in your book um the whole question of politics and power um and it does seem that uh <laughs> maybe whatever uh inspires you or about about human nature uh maybe does it stop at the door of uh the the, the politicians chambers right now i mean this is a big question isn't it with the the power the, the 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 way democracy currently works and the way it's structured and 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 and, and there are just big issues there in terms of uh change yes absolutely absolutely and um I mean I talked earlier about this whole process that we had for the biggest part of our history as a species you know in our evolutionary history where you had this uh, survival of the friendliest but nowadays if you look at our politics it often seems to be survival of the shameless there's quite some evidence that if you are a sociopath or a psychopath um you know they are overrepresented among CEOs and politicians and you just look around at these strongmen Trump Churchill Bolsonaro in Brazil and you wonder you know do they still blush <laughs> uh where has their capacity for shame gone which is so typically human right shame is so important in in holding our societies together you know it's the glue of our societies but yeah. then somehow these people seem to rise to the top which is a real indictment of what we call a democracy but in many ways it's obviously not a real democracy right it's more like a elective aristocracy or a mediocrity right it has very little to do i think with uh, yes. or, or with a corporatocracy corporatocracy because so many of yeah. the issues particularly are associated with a particular era really i mean in, in the last 30 years or so with the whole yeah. out of the state and so forth all that yeah. for another another discussion but what's next for you rutger oh it's a good question uh a holiday i guess Uh, <laughs> in my own country because uh, obviously we're not traveling anymore which is wonderful i've never never liked <laughs> never really liked traveling for these book tours uh, but then i mean it's also amazing in my mind is that in 2017 for my previous book i went on a book tour to so many of these countries right i went to australia i went to finland i went to the us i think i i don't know i took like 15 16 plane trips in total and then that just shows my ignorance of back then but it also shows how quickly things have developed because you know when i published this book i i i mean i just can't imagine myself doing so many plane trips like that again i mean it's just uh it feels like a a century ago that and i didn't even really really think all that much about it back in 2017 but now it's like i don't know just the the shame of it um 
yeah. So that I think that's an example of how quickly things has changed. Also, maybe that how late I was and how <laughs> wrong I was there. But um, yeah, um, and also actually doing a book tour remotely is is fine. You know, I've, with Australia, for example, I've I've, yeah. I've been doing like seventy or eighty percent of all the interviews doing it remotely. Yeah, uh, 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 it's no problem at all. So uh, I hope we'll we'll learn that lesson. Yes. Well, thank you so much for your time and sharing your fascinating work you've been doing and your ideas. Yeah. I wish you all the best on your holidays and your ongoing research. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. I hope you found it interesting. It would be great if you could leave a review and share the podcast on social media. You can sign up at iTunes to make sure you don't miss any future episodes.